Well, good morning to all of you. Um, we are going to be um, looking um, pretty extensively at Genesis chapter 14. So, um, so yes, the title is the First World War, and you all probably picturing your mind something different from what's found in Genesis 14. Um, and I actually thought maybe as an introduction, I would. I would go to a time in June 28, 1914. So there was a man by the name of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He was the heir to the Austrian throne, and he was traveling in Sarajevo. Um, and this was part of the Austrian Empire at that time. And he and his family were visiting the area, and on their way to the governor's mansion, a young man had thrown a grenade at their vehicle and the grenade missed and the archduke had arrived safely at the mansion but after a short rest he and his wife asked to be taken to a local hospital to see the people who had been injured by the bomb and on the way to the hospital his driver got confused on directions and the whole line of cars stopped in the street and at this point a bosnian ran up to their vehicle and shot both the archduke and his wife and that was the beginning of world war one not the one we're going to be talking about. Um, it caused the Austrian Empire to declare war on Serbia, which in turn triggered a whole bunch of different people declaring war on each other. And thus was born the First World War. So if you picture in your head what brought on World War One, you've probably heard about this Archduke being assassinated. It makes you wonder, you know, why is it that suddenly one person being killed would suddenly trigger all these other uh, you know, Germany and France going to war and England getting involved. And it just had to do with all kinds of alliances that had pre-existed this. And once one person was killed and war was declared, then suddenly all these other wars, like um, things were triggered. And um, the uh, the worst fighting that had happened on Earth until that point. Um, but we're going to be going to a world war that preceded this by 3,500 years. And even though we don't understand all the things that led up to World War I because it's beyond our distant memory, um, we probably understand even less about what was going on here in Genesis chapter 14. So there have been many wars before this. Um, we don't know what was going on before the flood. We have a, a pretty um, pretty small understanding of that. We know that things were wicked. We can gather that there was a lot of uh, war on the earth and, and a lot of immorality and idolatry. And all this led God to destroy the earth with a flood. But none of those things are recorded. And so I'm going to call this the First World War. So we have at the beginning of this story, four kings listed, Amraphel, Ariach, Kedor Leomer, and Tidal. And these are transliterations. So these are um, um, Hebrew translations of foreign names that are then translated into English. So they probably, um, they probably are different if you would know the original language. Of course, none of us do. So... Kedor Leomer was probably the leader of this alliance. He is the king of Elam, um, which was an area of Mesopotamia in what is now modern Iran. And interestingly, we know very little about Elam because um, their early period, while they left written records, they, they left something called the Elam Linear Script. Uh, 
And if I would ask how many of you all can read Elon Linear's script, you would, none of you would raise your hand, so I won't bother. Uh, because at least up until recently, nobody could read it. It was, it was undeciphered. So, you know, we probably need a, a Rosetta Stone kind of thing where we find something that has that and other things on it and we can translate it. Um, so later on, they started using cuneiform like the Sumerians um, nearby, um, but early in their history, they didn't. Um, title, people think, was a, um, a king of the Hittites called Tudale. Tutalaya and um, Shinar is probably associated with Sumer. So these kings invaded Canaan and forced it to pay tribute. So they, you know, later on empires would take over. So the Roman Empire would take over. They would depose kings and they would put um, their own procurators or governors in place. Um, but in this time, um, the the powers that that were strong enough would come into a land and they would leave the kings in place, but they would say, you will pay us tax. And as long as you pay us tax, we won't come back. But if you don't pay us tax, we will invade you again and we'll destroy a whole bunch of stuff. And so they got a bunch of money out of this. And so for 12 years, the cities of the plain had paid tribute. And at the end of this time, they apparently decided they'd had enough. And we don't really know why. Uh, maybe they, thought they'd build up enough military might that they could throw off the yoke. Um, perhaps they just thought the distance was too great. Um, and to me, as I read it, it sounded a little bit like the American Revolution. So people glorify the American Revolution as a fight for freedom, but truthfully it came down to people in the 13 colonies not wanting to pay taxes on goods that they imported from somewhere else in the British Empire. And the Crown had spent a bunch of money on defending the colonies, and so they put taxes on stuff. So tea and stamps and Americans didn't like it, and so they revolted. And so that brings us to the beginning of this chapter. So the battle in the plains. We're going to read Genesis 14, 1 through 12. We're going to kind of divide this up, go over the, go over the story, and then we're going to try to make some applications at the end. So, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, entitled king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedoleomer, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year... Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Asheroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim, in Sheveh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and all the Amorites who dwell in Hazazon, Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. 
Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So I'm going to begin with the end here, which is that Lot is in Sodom. So the last time I preached, we, we finished up and Lot was pitching his tent towards Sodom. He's looking at the city and we don't know exactly how long after he... Um, he moved to the environs around Sodom, but he eventually bought a place in town. It just was easier um, to um, it was easier to live there. He probably had been moving around, and he thought, you know, this is this is kind of a central place. My flocks are grazing around here. I'll just get a place in town, and um, and it'll be just perfect for me and my wife and and our daughters, and everything will be great. So. Not only was Lot in Sodom, though, but he was also fighting alongside the people of the plain in their battles. Um, and sometimes people say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, I don't know if you all have heard that statement, but um, it's not really true, is it? Just because somebody dislikes the same person you dislike doesn't mean that they actually have any good feelings towards you. Um, and there's times whenever people are united by their dislike of something, and um, once they... Um, gets um, some removal from that thing that they dislike, it turns out they have little in common. And so if your whole reason why you're with somebody is because you both dislike the same thing, that's actually not a very good foundation for a relationship. It's much better if you actually like the same things. Um, and I don't think Lot actually liked the same things as the people in Sodom. I hope he didn't. Um, but um, but whenever they were attacked, Lot went out with those people. And it's Understandable, right? He he's defending his property, his stuff. He lives with these people, and um, he doesn't really hold to all their values. But you know, hey, he's where he's at, and he's got to do the best he can. And so I just kind of leave with us that we need to be careful about the groups that we ally ourselves with. Um, secular groups are going to tend to use techniques and have values that are different from the ones that we hold. Second Corinthians six fourteen through eighteen. Uh, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion is light with darkness? And what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement is the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And when people are thinking about this, I think they, they tend to think about business partnerships and maybe marriages. Um, but I think the basic idea is that we need to make certain that we have a spiritual community around us that is encouraging us and pushing us towards the things of God. We need people who are going to hold us accountable when we're going astray and people that are going to encourage us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. So the first part of this talks about four kings against five kings. So if you got completely lost in those lists, the places, the, the, uh, the names of the people, because uh, they, you know, it'd be easier, wouldn't it, if they they had just named them things like King Joe and King Bob and 
stuff like that, because those are names that are familiar to us. I, I don't know anyone whose name is Amraphel. But the basic idea is that there are four kings versus five kings. So you would think five kings have the advantage, right? Um, but the reality is that these four kings were were rulers over much bigger lands and probably had many more uh, men at their disposal. Uh, so these were... Uh, uh, rulers over countries versus rulers over little city states, and um, and so they have bigger armies, uh, and you know so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah had already lost one battle to this um, this group of of kings, and um, you know if um, if you've been beaten badly by another team, there's there's not a particular reason why you think you're going to to beat them the second time around, unless you know. I mean, we always have excuses for why we lose, but, you know, they were playing softball at boys' camp yesterday, and I don't know which team won, but, you know, probably if they played again, that team would win again, I imagine. Maybe not. Um, so when I was growing up, we would, at the end of school, we would always have a father versus son softball game. And I always thought, you know, at the, at the um, beginning of the game, I thought, you know, we've really got a chance this year, the, the fathers are so much older than they were last year, and the sons, you know, we're, we've gotten some skills. We were playing all the time. The fathers aren't. Uh, but the problem was we had so many bad players on our team. Like, they let the little people play, too, and they were they had strikeout, and they, they weren't very good. And so, anyway, we always lost. Um, we never beat them. So, unlike the challenge, which usually the, <laughs> the school kids uh, beat the, the, the um, parents. So anyway, the end result is that the four kings took a lot of plunder, they captured a lot of people, and they captured Lot and all his stuff. So Abram goes in pursuit. We're going to read verses 13 through 17 here. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shevet, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with them. So this begins with Abram finding out about this big defeat. So somebody escapes, we don't know who it was, and they come running to Abram. I don't know why they came running to Abram. Maybe it just seemed like a safe place to go. Maybe they knew that Lot was relative of Abram's. Um, but anyway, they came and they shared this news. And I don't know if Abram would have made anything of this situation or gotten involved if it hadn't been for the fact that Lot was there. Um, and he calls Lot his brother here, but, you know, he's using the word brother generically, like uh, relative. Um, so the point is that Abram was willing to risk his life for someone in his family, even if they hadn't gotten along very well together. Um and the verses came to my mind from Jude, um, verses 20 through 23. It says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, 
praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And so Abram loved Lot. Lot didn't really deserve being loved. He had kind of taken advantage of Abram. He had chosen the best place. And, um, and yet Abram said, you know, I will do whatever I can for this relative of mine. And so Abram armed his, his household. And it says that Abram was a wealthy man, that he had 318 servants that he could go and arm. But, but you know, 318 people, I mean, I don't have 318 people working with me, but even if you had that many, you're going off to fight an army that has just defeated five kings. You're not, you know, that's this is not good odds. Um, and as I was reading about it, I, it just reminded me a little bit of the story of Gideon. Um, you know, Gideon had, uh, what, 18 fewer men, 300 men at the end of the at the end of his whittling, uh, whittling things down. Um, so Abram had a had a good force, I guess, 318 servants that he could actually arm. Um, and it says they were trained. So I, I'm assuming this is trained in battle. I don't think it meant that they like met, went to medical school or, you know, had some kind of skills. It uh, except those related to military things. And he had some some friends, um, allies that um, were from the areas close by. So it mentions Mamre, Eshkol, and Anar. We don't know who those people were, but they were Canaanites who lived um, nearby, and Abram was living near Hebron. So God won the victory. Um, a lot of people try to make this victory Abram's victory. Um, as I read about it, he talked about, oh, Abram, he prepared for all kinds of eventualities. He trained his men. He'd gotten everything ready. He executed a special battle plan by dividing his forces. Um, but there's no no indication of anything except that God gave him the victory. So Abram caught up with the army in Dan. This was nearly 200 miles from the south of the land where Lot was captured and 150 miles from Hebron. So that's a long ways to go on foot. Um, and yet they caught them. Um, I don't think that the the kings were expecting somebody to come on them, even a small force of 300-ish men. And um, and Abram pursued them for another 50 miles up north of Damascus. So the, the point is that this was a total victory. This confederation of kings wasn't going to come back to Canaan anytime soon. Um, they could have returned. They could have, like, you know, replaced the lost men and equipment and decided to come back. But this was a – this was – a force that was about gaining tax money and stuff like that. And if they lost a bunch of money, they just think, you know, it's not worth it to go that that way. Well, if we're going to attack somebody, we'll attack somebody easier, easier to conquer. So when we think about this, um, we need to realize that every victory we gain in our own lives comes because of God's work. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare. So if you have a big test in school, uh, which is better, to study um, every day, getting ready for it, um, or just maybe for a couple hours the night before the test have a big prayer meeting and just devote yourself to, to crying out to God and asking him to 
to work wonders in your life and help you miraculously pass the test. Uh, I know what Vincent's going to say. What do you think, Vincent? Can you pray and study? Well, that's a good question. So that's what I think. I think studying is is probably um, important, but I think that praying as well, that you would have a clear mind, that you could remember the things that you've studied, that you would have um, good time management so you could get through the, the tests in a timely fashion. These are probably all good things. I think about it, too, when it comes to temptation. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And the point is not that we are stronger than Satan, but that we have someone on our side who gives us a victory. And then we come to the final part of this chapter. Abram meets Melchizedek. So Genesis 14, 18 through 24 Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Accept only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Enar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So here we have the aftermath of the battle. Uh, We don't have a whole lot of details. Uh, We don't know if Abram lost many men. Uh, We just know that he gained the victory, recovered the spoil, and then journeyed southward. And as he's journeying southward, he meets two kings, King of Sodom and the King of Salem. Um, And we'll take Melchizedek first, the King of Salem. Um, The word Salem means peace. We think that this city would eventually become the city Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem means city of peace in Hebrew. And you see the the word Salem there, or um, some would say Shalom. Um, And we see that he was a priest of El El Yon, the Most High God. And we don't know much else about him. So Hebrews talks about him. If you all um, think about him, it, it indicates that he is a type of Christ. So we see pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this was not Jesus. Okay, so let's be clear Melchizedek was not Jesus. He was not ruling over a city in some kind of incarnate form. But there are things that we see as almost like a picture of who Jesus was to be in Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, I'm going to read the first 17 verses here because I think it it gives a little bit of an indication of, of who this person was. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually, 
Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch, Abraham, gave a tenth of the spoils, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it is, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this passage makes several comparisons between Melchizedek and Jesus. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of peace. And we obviously understand that Jesus is the king of peace. He came to earth to break down the walls of the division between us, to, to settle conflicts, to, to bring shalom to this world. Um, it says that he had no father or mother. And, uh, you know, we know that Melchizedek had both a father and a mother, um, but um, but Jesus, um, so but we don't have them listed, okay? So he's saying something that's more derived from the fact that we don't know much about Melchizedek. Um, Jesus had parents too, but they weren't necessarily, at least his father wasn't the one that everybody thought was his father. Um, Jesus had neither beginning of days nor end of days. and So Melchizedek, it doesn't list when he was born and when he died, um, these Dates aren't recorded for us. Um, I shared last time I've been reading some about Amelia Earhart, and um, we know the day that Amelia Earhart was born, um, but um, she flew out into the Pacific Ocean and was never heard from again. And some people think that she landed on a desert island out there. Some people think she crashed in the um, in the ocean. Um, I don't know what happened to her, but you know what I know? She's not alive today. Okay, so, you know, we could say that um, Amelia Earhart lives forever because we don't know the specific day that she died. But we know that Jesus does live forever. And that's a blessing. He finishes up here saying that Jesus lives and that he is a priest forever. He is greater than Levi and Aaron. So the point being that Abraham was the father of, of people, Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, was the father of Levi, and then distantly descended Aaron. These were the this was the the priestly tribe, and yet the author of Hebrews says that because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, it was almost as though Levi was paying a tithe to Melchizedek, and that therefore he is greater than Levi. 
and he brought them bread and wine. And we see just a little picture of the communion service here, don't we? Um, this is not communion. It's not saying that um, he broke the bread and, and administered wine. Um, but what we see is that there's a need for a better priest, a better covenant than what hap- was in existence in the Old Testament. So Abram paid a tithe to the king of Salem. If you all have heard of the um, Roman emperors and generals, they would come back um, after a victory over the barbarians and they would have what was called a Roman triumph. And they would have a whole ceremony where they would parade through town and they would wear a crown of laurels and a purple toga and, um, and they would have all the captives and spoils of war shown to the people. And they would take all the adulation. I am the greatest. You all respect me because I have had victory over the barbarians. And Abraham, Abram does the opposite here, doesn't he? He gives glory to God and he gives the spoils away. Abram is expressing thankfulness for his victory. We didn't see any doubt in Abram, uh, self-doubt in Abram before the victory, um, but we do see just a, a, a spirit of thankfulness when he has the victory. Then Abram receives a blessing. So Melchizedek gives him a blessing here. And we see a contrast, don't we? So there are two kings. The king of Sodom offers Abram stuff. He says, I want to give you all this stuff. You just give me the people. You keep the stuff. And in a sense, you know, this was Abram's stuff. He, you know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. I don't know if they said something like that in Hebrew, but certainly Abram could have kept the stuff. It was his. He's like, oh, you keep it. Well, it's mine. I, I, I captured it. Abram says, no, I don't want it. And the king of Salem offers him a blessing, and Abram takes that. Which was more important to Abram, the blessing or the money? Well, you know, Abram says he's got a few different reasons maybe why he turned down this stuff. First of all, he says that he vowed to God not to take a sandal latch or a thread of cloth. Um, and we don't know why he vowed that. Um, it doesn't doesn't say there. Um, but certainly he was going to hold up that vow. He, it was something that was important to him, that he honored that, that oath that he had taken to God. Um, second thing is that he, he hadn't gone after the people of the plain because of a desire to enrich himself, to get spoil, or even because of the people of Sodom. He went after them because he loved Lot, and he saw him as valuable. And as he had gotten Lot back, that was the important thing to him. And then maybe um, maybe the last thing is that he just did not want a wicked king to claim that he had enriched Abram. Now, this wouldn't have been, if, it, if the king of Sodom had said, you know, I made Abram rich, that wouldn't have been true anyway. You know, if Abram went and plundered a king and got a bunch of stuff, and then the king of Sodom says, well, you know, I sort of gave it to him. Well, it wasn't the king of Sodom's anymore. It was, you know, Keterleomer's stuff at that point. But Abram didn't didn't care about that. He had enough, and he didn't need to accept gifts, gifts from a wicked person in order to continue serving God. So 
let's move on to some areas of application. And we're going to run through a bunch of different things here. Um, first thing is, kind of going back to lot, we can get into a lot of trouble when we hang out with the wrong people, even if we aren't doing anything bad. So I don't know what Lot was doing, but he was with the wrong people. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs 24, verse 1 says, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. And I remember when I was um, doing my internship, and um, we had a, a fellow who had um, gotten admitted through the ER to the surgery service. I was working on the surgery rotation at that point. And, um, and um, he had tried to break into somebody's garage and that person had come out and beaten him up pretty badly and um, broke his jaw. And so the oral surgeon came in and wired his jaw shut. And so anyway, then he got admitted to our service. And I was trying to get a history from him and ask him what had happened. And he just kept mumbling because he couldn't open his mouth very well. And finally I got out of him, you know, he says, well, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and that was, you know, that was probably true. Um, now, he had chosen to be in that place, um, but the Bible doesn't tell us that Lot was doing anything bad, but he was living with bad people. And so when they were defeated, he was captured too. Um, maybe it seems like you should, God should protect Lot from that, but he didn't. And so moving forward from that, our brothers and sisters are worth saving even when they seem to have wandered from what is right. So we read the passage from Jude um, verses 20 through 23. talks about saving people with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Um, and it's easy when you see somebody who's doing things that you know are wrong and you sort of care about them, but you say, well, I guess they're making their own choices. I, I don't think they're the best choices, but um, I guess we'll pray for them that they find the right way. And Abram could have done that, too. He's, you know, God, you know, Lot's made some bad choices in his life and he's he's kind of paying the price right now, but... I just pray that you would rescue him. And if he had done that, God certainly spoke to him and said, you know, Abram, I want you to go after him. I want you to speak to him. I want you to make a difference in his life. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And I've heard this verse a lot of times, mostly in the church context of church discipline issues. Um, but I think this, this verse is talking more about personal offenses and, and just speaking to the fact that we can make a difference. Maybe we can't. Maybe, maybe we share with somebody and they just won't listen to us, but we can at least try. And these sorts of missions grow best out of relationship. Next thing is that victory comes from God. So we mentioned the story of Gideon. God had to bring down his fighting force to just about 300 men before uh, God was willing to have Gideon face the Midianites. Um, Abram started off with 300-ish men. He didn't have to whittle them down. He was way outnumbered. Uh, but Abram went forward with a love of Lot and a trust in God. 
Psalm 118, verses 6 through 8 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And there are a lot of other verses that we could follow the Psalms that speak of God working on behalf of his people. Um, but it seems to me that um, when we have God on our side, it's, it, it just makes the equation just, you know, it, it's just not even fair. So if I, if I challenged um, um, some of the team guys here to a, a basketball game um, and I said, you know, Milo Delvin Jr. and I are going to play basketball against you all. Um, and, um, and then I didn't mention, but I, and I also have the best player in the NBA coming to play with us. And um, I, I looked up who won the MVP last year, somebody named Joel, Joel Embiid. Um, and I think he's probably good enough that we would still beat you all, even if you're really good. He's tall. He's way taller than me. Um, and, he's, um, and he can jump high. And he probably shoots, well, he definitely shoots better than me. I don't know about better than Milo. So anyway, when we have God on our team, it's, it's way better than that. We don't have to worry. It's, un, it's not a fair fight. And I think it's important that we remember this is not just about physical trials. So sometimes we think about those things. And yet, this is about victory over Satan's wiles too, isn't it? Ephesians 6, verse 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men. Because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the wicked one. He says it twice. You have overcome the wicked one. And it's not that we're stronger than Satan. We aren't. But God is. To gain the victory, we need to identify the enemy. We need to realize the areas in which we are falling down. We need to realize that it is our responsibility to gain victory. We can't blame it on the people around us. We cannot blame it on circumstances. We cannot blame it on our past. We must go forward. And then we need to realize that we cannot gain victory without God's help. This story should give us hope. If we've struggled in the past, if there's something that you are struggling with this morning, God is faithful and he has the power to give us victory. Just as Abram had victory over with 300 men over several thousand men, we can have victory over the areas in which Satan beats us down in our life. In conclusion, I would like to think a little bit more about this idea of giving victory. And I've 
recently read the autobiography of John Patton. He was a Scottish man who traveled to the New Hebrides Islands to act as a missionary. Um, the first few years he was there, he lived on an island called Tana, um, and he faced terrible adversity, adversity while he was there. Um, he was almost killed on multiple occasions, and there were other people who were there who were killed. And so eventually he moved away from that island of Tana, and he, um, he moved to a different island in the same chain called Aniwa. And Aniwa is a flat coral island with absolutely no water sources on the island. There were no streams, no wells, and all the water that the people got was captured from rainwater or water that they got from opening coconuts. And so one day John got the idea that he was going to sink a well. And he told the local chief that he was going to sink a deep well into the ground and see if our God will send up fresh water from below. And they called him Missy. The chief said, oh, Missy, wait till the rain comes down and we will save all we possibly can for you. John said, no, he's going to sink a well. Oh, Missy, rain comes only from above. How could you expect an island to send up showers of rain from below? But John decided he was going to start, and so he he began digging, and um, as he was digging the well, he paid some of the native people to help him, um, but then one night there was a cave-in at the well, it just, um, just back to square one, and an old chief told him, now, Missy, had you been in that hole last night, you would have been buried, and one day a man of war from Queen Victoria would come to ask for that Missy who lived here. And we would have to say, he's down in that hole. And the captain would say, who killed him and put him down there? We would say, he went down there by himself. The captain would answer, nonsense. Who ever heard of a white man going down into the earth to bury himself? You killed him and put him in there. Don't hide your bad conduct with lies. So please give up this mad freak. No, for no rain will be found by going downwards on Aniwa. So they were pretty pretty sure something bad was going to happen, and this was just wasted time. But as the hole got deeper, John began to worry. Maybe they would run into coral that they couldn't pierce. Maybe the water would be brackish or salty and not useful. And so he began to pray fiercely every single night for the project, for he understood that this would be a, mirac a miracle to the people of Aniwa and let, would let them know that the God he served was powerful. Then the bottom of the well began to get damp, and he told an old chief, I think that Jehovah God will give us water tomorrow from that hole. The chief replied, No, Missy, you will never see rain coming up from the earth of this island. We wonder what it is to be the end of this mad work of yours. We expect daily, if you reach water, to see you drop through into the sea, and the sharks will eat you. That will be the end of you, death to you, and danger to the rest of us. The next day at daybreak, he went down into the well and sank a narrow hole in the center, and there water rushed up and began to fill the hole. It was fresh water, and he said he knew that this well would mean more to these islanders than Moses' water from the rock in the desert. This was a big change in their church, and many people came to trust God as a result of this miracle well. And strangely, through Though for many years, the indigenous people tried to sink their own wells in likely places. They either came to rock that they could not pierce, or they found that the water was salty. And they said amongst themselves, Missy not only used pick and spade, 
But he prayed and he cried to his God. We have learned to dig, but we have not learned how to pray. And therefore Jehovah will not give us the rain from below. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So what a blessing it is to know that God is with us. It doesn't matter if we're facing a world war or simply worries close to home. We know that he will walk beside us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Just as Abram won a great victory with a few men and faith in a great God, we too can gain victory in our own lives, regardless of how great the foe is that we face.